Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Pepys, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Danielle Allen, James Conant University Professor at Harvard University. She's the Director of Harvard's Edmund J. Safra Center for Ethics. Allen is a pr prolific author and political theorist who has written about education, citizenship, and justice. Her recent titles include Our Declaration, a reading of the Declaration of Independence in Defense of Equality, Education and Equality, and the memoir Cuz, The Life and Times of Michael A. She co-edited Education, Justice, and Democracy with Rob Reich, and From Voice to Influence, Understanding Citizenship in the Digital Age with Jennifer Light. Allen is also the principal investigator for the Democratic Knowledge Project, a distributed research and action lab at Harvard University. Allen gave a talk titled The Ethics of Public Participation in a Digital Age on May 21st, 2019, as the Oregon Humanities Center's 2018-2019 Criticos Lecturer. Her talk was part of the Common Good series. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Paul. Glad to be here. Tell us a little bit about your background and your trajectory to the Academy. Sure. Well, the fact is I'm a faculty brat. So I grew up in Southern California, Claremont, and my dad taught at Harvey Mudd, and my mother was a librarian, so there were lots of books around, and I used to go to commencement every year for my dad. Um, and I loved watching the people in their academic robes. <laughs> so the fact is it's that basic. I wanted one of those costumes. <laughs> I think that's really what kept me in the academy. Um, it's some kind of deep and fundamental level. I just admired it, respected it, saw people doing amazing things, and appreciated it. So your, um, your first PhD is in classics. That's right. So what led you to your interest in classics? So that was a total accident. I got to college thinking I would major in politics. That was always what I had been most interested in. And in my sophomore year, I wandered into a class on Athenian democracy. The professor was the best teacher I had ever had, still to this day, the best teacher I've ever had. And we all know the difference that a great teacher makes. So um, in that course, we were reading a lot of Athenian legal material court speeches and so forth. And um, I had grown up in LA County in the 70s and 80s. And I was really struck by all this Athenian legal material that they seemed to never mention prisons. Mm -hmm. And so in class one day, um, I said to my professor, you know, what's with these Athenians? Didn't they have prisons? And he said, that would make a great dissertation topic. Mm -hmm. So um, I was just really intrigued by that historical contrast. And that's really what led me to major in classics and then pursue graduate work in classics. So you, you've, you've said that you were always interested in politics. You first studied the uh, politics in the context of the classics, but you then broadened uh, to more contemporary politics. So tell us That's about right. that, how that transition, transition happened. Sure. So at some level, I've always just been interested in democracy. I think it's just pretty rudimentary belief in the good for people of freedom and equality and a sense of sort of wanting to understand how to make this potentially beautiful thing happen for people. Mm -hmm. So I was really intrigued in the ancient case, Athens. You know, how did democracy even get invented, even in a small city state? And the beauty of studying antiquity is that it's dead. So it doesn't change anymore. There's a, it's a closed case. You know, all of the books from the period can sort of fit on set of shelves of a certain magnitude. You can read everything mm -hmm. and really understand it. So you can develop all your analytical skills um, and then bring them back to thinking about the messy, constantly changing contemporary case. So that was it, really. I mean, it's, you know, democracy has been the thing I've been fundamentally motivated by. Um, thinking about the ancient versions was a sort of good starter set. 
Um, and then when I came back to the States to do graduate work in political philosophy, that was sort of back to the contemporary questions. So you mentioned um, uh, democracy, liberty, and equality. Yeah, exactly. And I know that, that your view is that uh, in America we've tended to emphasize the freedom side, the liberty side, and we haven't been thinking as hard or seriously about the equality side. Say a little bit about that. Sure. Um, so both concepts, freedom and equality, have had their own careers, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Their meanings have changed across generations. In the 18th century, the definition of freedom that was to the fore was um, freedom as being free from domination, very specifically not having anybody have arbitrary power over you. Mm -hmm. And the goal, as in the 18th century people were building new republics, was to build worlds where citizens, so limited to, to white men typically, but could be free and equal together. Mm -hmm. None would be dominated by any other. To achieve that kind of freedom, you also needed equality. Freedom and equality went hand in glove. And that was true really through the late 19th century. And it was really the rise of communism and the switch of orientation with regard to equality from political equality to material equality that began to change the conversation. And then in the 20th century, in the context of the Cold War, um, sort of American Cold Warriors really defined um, the Soviet Union as the country that represented equality, um, meant very strictly as sort of equal material distribution of goods. Mm -hmm. um, and they defined the US as the country that stood for freedom. And that adversarial um, contrast between freedom and equality has stayed with us, um, much to our, um, I think, injury, actually. Mm -hmm. So it means we've lost sight of really how to think about basic human moral equality, how to think about political equality and its importance, how to think about social equality. And it's also crippled our ability to think about economic questions, because there are all kinds of versions of uh, egalitarian economic policy that aren't about strict material distribution. Mm -hmm. um, and we should be open to thinking about the full range of possibilities in, with regard to economic policy. So I think most people, uh, if you were, they hear you say that, they would say, well, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> uh, but they turn on their, new, you know, their television and what they right. see is a bunch of people shouting at each other who right. aren't. So one thing that you've become very concerned with is this question of, civics education. Mm -hmm. So first of all, what, what, how would you characterize the state of civics education in the United States right now? It's in pretty bad shape. Um, I mean, and you can measure it in a couple of different ways. You can look at sort of what adults know, or you can look at what children are getting in school. Mm -hmm. And along most of these dimensions, there's been a decline. Um, if you just look at time in school spent on things like U.S. government classes or civics or social studies, it's come way down. Um, and a lot of that in the last um, two decades is the result of um, testing regimes that have focused on um, English language arts and STEM classes. So mm -hmm. we all know the mantra, you teach the test. There aren't any accountability tests in civics or social studies, and consequently, that material doesn't get taught. It's important, though, to say that the reason there are no um, tests in civics is actually because of adult polarization. So when the National Governors Association sat at, set out um, in the early 2000s, to try to develop um, standards that they could agree on to replace No Child Left Behind. They wanted to create standards in STEM fields, again, English language arts, and also social studies. So this work is what resulted in the Common Core, mm -hmm. and they achieved those standards in the first two domains. But there was so much disagreement over how US history should be taught that they could not actually collectively achieve standards in social studies. So it's a terrible thing uh, from my point of view um, that basically kids are not getting social studies in school because adults are fighting with each other. Mm -hmm. 
So I know that you, uh, when you were at the University of Chicago, you s you were doing some adult education and you started to teach the Declaration of Independence. Yes, yes. yes. Now, from my perspective, I would say, and, what, and I was a grad student at the University of Chicago, and we also studied the Declaration in the writing program yep. very often. Very and good. and I and it, it would seem to me that, um, and I, I want to ask you about your experiences doing this work, but it would seem to me that this is a, th this must be something that Americans could agree is a good thing to teach our populace to read the Declaration and to talk about the Declaration? I think we're getting there, but it's more of an uphill battle than you might think. Um, I mean, the first challenge with the Declaration is that in addition to encoding incredibly important principles, they're not only lofty, but actually also pragmatically sound, mm -hmm. um, the text also encodes negative um, views and principles. So for example, the treatment of Native Americans as merciless Indian savages, mm -hmm. And there are compromises in the document around slavery. Mm -hmm. There's an abolitionist moment in the Declaration, but there is also um, a pro-slavery moment in the Declaration. Mm -hmm. So our contests over how to deal with that history make even the Declaration something that can be very hard to convince people to teach. Mm -hmm. So you've written a book on the Declaration, our Declaration, a reading of the Declaration of Independence in Defense of Equality. Would mm -hmm. you say a little bit about the argument of that book? Sure. Um, well, you alluded to a part of it. So it, the book started as teaching in a night class. I taught uh, low-income adults who were trying to make their way back into the educational system. And the goal of the program was to give these students the same quality of education as we gave to the University of Chicago students during the day. Um, but many of the night students hadn't finished high school, had a very different level of preparation. Mm -hmm. So there's this kind of fundamental challenge of how do you deliver an equal quality education when the students don't have the same preparation. And the answer to that question turned out to be you, sh you use short texts. You don't sacrifice an iota in terms of the quality of the texts that you teach, but you are willing to teach shorter texts. So I picked the Declaration of Independence for purely pragmatic reasons, because it was short mm -hmm. and I could use it to teach history, to teach writing, to teach philosophy. Mm -hmm. And so, the importance of all that background is to say that then the argument of the book was about the accessibility of the Declaration to my students. Mm -hmm. um, the Declaration is a story about people trying to change their lives. They look around, they see the way the king is thwarting them and hindering their ab ability to build a path towards flourishing, and they do something about it. And that nugget um, of what the story of the Declaration is leads us straight to the insight about what human equality consists of. Mm -hmm. It's the fact that human beings are purposive, they diagnose their circumstances, they try to figure out what's wrong with them, and then they seek a path to an improvement. And my students got that immediately. And it was the fact that that's the argument of the Declaration, that my students got it immediately, that they were doing the same thing as the revolutionaries were doing, that led to the core argument of the book which is that, our, that equality is in fact the bedrock of democracy. Mm -hmm. Freedom rests on that recognition of human moral equality and our ability to instantiate it in our institutions and social forms. So my students helped me see that that was the argument of the Declaration and then I took it on myself um, through the book to try to show the rest of the world that that's the argument of the Declaration. Mm -hmm. And one of the key concepts that uh, emerges from this is your argument in favor of um, uh, egalitarian participatory democracy. Mm -hmm. So say what you mean by that idea. Sure. Um, so again, um, these ideals, they're very abstract. They can seem unanchored in reality of, of equality and freedom, um, have had different meanings at different points in time. And the concept of freedom, which is about freedom from domination, 
um, is often and rightly contrasted to a concept which is about freedom from interference. Um, so freedom from interference is the idea that anytime the government does anything, it's wrong. Um, and this is ultimately an incoherent view. Um, human societies can't survive without some form of collective self-organization. Um, that's what government is. So the question is only whether or not what the government does is legitimate or not. And the boundary between legitimate government action and illegitimate government action is this line about domination. Nothing that dominates is legitimate. So you have to figure out what domination is about. At any rate, the point of saying all of that is um, if your model of, of freedom is that what you're after is freedom from interference, then you're just trying to stay away from government, stay away from politics, and so forth. That leads to one picture of what a citizen is. Mm -hmm. If your model for freedom is that it should be freedom from domination, then the question is, well, how do you achieve laws that aren't dominating? And the only way to do that is for citizens to be the authors of the laws. Mm -hmm. So when you write the laws for yourself, they don't, they're not dominating for you. So achieving active participation of the citizenry in democratic institutions is how you build freedom from domination. So that's what it means to think about an egalitarian participatory democracy, that you really recognize the legitimacy of the activities of the government depends on there being robust and engaged participation from the citizen group. And it means that when the populace is disengaged or alienated from the government, that actually uh, helps to sow the seeds for domination. Yes, that's right, exactly. And in, in two different ways, it helps to sow the seeds from, for domination because the voices of the people aren't factoring into the political process and they're not helping to shape the laws as they should be. Um, and also in that um, as citizens become alienated from government, the government becomes less legitimate in the eyes of the citizenry and that very fact in itself also is a source of domination. Mm -hmm. So you are also the principal investigator of the Democratic Knowledge Project, which is related right. to everything we've been talking about. So tell us a, a little bit about the project. Sure. Well, so, I mean, it's funny how all these things are connected. You start out in one place, mm -hmm. and the next thing you know, you're like a bazillion miles away, but actually there was a path that took you there. Um, and, and you've fit the, exactly the right connection in the sense that once you have the view that a legitimate democracy depends on really active engagement and participation by citizens, mm -hmm. Then you have to ask yourself the question of, well, what does it take for citizens to do that well? And suddenly you have coming into view the fact that there are these bodies of knowledge that citizens need if they're going to operate the machinery of their government effectively. Um, if you have the view, which is just about keeping sort of government away in as small as possible, you forget about that need for knowledge, actually. Mm -hmm. So the Democratic Knowledge Project is a combination of a kind of basic research enterprise, a lab, if you will. Um, and what I call an action enterprise, a sort of implementation or translation component, where what we seek to do is identify the skills, capacities, and habits that citizens need in order to operate healthy democracies. And then once we identify them, see what we can do to help cultivate them, sometimes through education, sometimes through other forms of um, engagement. So could you give an example of the effort to cultivate these things? Sure, sure. Well, let me, I'm going to put you to two kinds of knowledge that um, active citizens need that are, to me, surprisingly atrophied um, in our culture. Mm -hmm. So one is that any decision making um, always involves being able to move back and forth between consideration of the values that shape your objectives mm -hmm. and the tactics that um, would help you best deliver on those objectives. Um, which means when you talk about any kind of problem, you could pick a big policy one like healthcare or um, economic policy or a local issue like housing, anything like that, um, you can't ever get very far in the problem without stepping back to ask about what values you're actually trying to pursue. 
Most people forget that. Mm -hmm. Very few people actually do that self-consciously and intentionally. Mm -hmm. So we do work teaching people to connect values to assessment of facts and diagnosis of the circumstances to prescription and so forth and to become intentional about that process. Um, a related thing is in a democratic context, that work of putting decisions about values and decisions about tactics together um, has to be collaborative. It has to be done through conversation. Um, well, you know, there's a structure for doing things like that through conversation. It's the structure of committees. Now, that sounds very boring. We're in a university. Everybody hates committees. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is that knowing how to build and run a good committee is one of the single most important democratic skills there is. And again, very few people recognize that those skills of that really good chair of a committee meeting or that person is a really good participant for the conversation, or those are learnable skills, things we can teach and they actually improve the quality of how we do our work as democratic citizens. So we spot things like this, we try to, um, where it makes sense, measure their impact or how they matter in people's lives. And then whether through civil society groups or through civic education curricula, um, we do workshops basically to teach people about these skills and give them ways of practicing them so then they can take them back into their own work of civic engagement. So tell me about the um, Youth Participation Politics Research Network. Sure. So that was a research network sponsored by the MacArthur Foundation. They gathered together about 10 different academics from different disciplines. Um, at just the point um, right before, right when Facebook was being created. So it was exactly that moment where we could all see something new was happening in the world of technology and there was just this big open question about what kind of impact was it going to have. And they wanted to know what did this all mean for how youth would develop as civic actors. Um, for me, it was a super interesting question because here I was trying to understand citizenship and yes, these technologies were changing and so I sort of uh, you know, grabbed the opportunity to participate in that conversation. Um, and so it was really a sort of uh, ultimately seven or eight years effort to track the impacts of technology on youth civic experience um, and then to think about interventions to help ensure that as young people are more increasingly active civically sort of through digital tools mm -hmm. um, that that civic work is, um, is successful, healthy, um, equitable, effective, and also uh, not dangerous to the young people involved. So can you say something about the framework devised by the project for helping youth become effective civic actors? Sure, in fact, I'm gonna talk about it some tonight in my okay, lecture. There's, um, we've got something called uh, 10 Questions for Young Changemakers, um, which is a reflection and action framework, as we call it. Um, it goes back to that work I was describing of putting values and tactics together. Mm -hmm. um, but in addition, you know, sort of being a civic agent in the digital age requires being very intentional about self-protection. There are new kinds of dangers to psyche and personal well-being um, that young people have to become attentive to at an early age. Um, so the questions sort of walk young people through a process of reflection to prepare them for civic action. Um, we're currently using the questions in the design of um, a new year-long eighth grade um, civics curriculum for mm -hmm. Massachusetts. In Interesting, because I know that you've spoken about how uh, up until the digital age, if you were a public figure, you were by necessity going to be subject to certain kinds of right. pressures and dangers. Right. But if you didn't choose to be a public figure, you weren't. That's right, exactly. But now we live in a culture where everybody is. Or uh, anybody can, can become, become a public figure at any given moment, exactly. The sort of unpredictability of virality um, is a really uh, powerful thing. It's a distinctive phenomenon and one that young people need to be equipped um, to deal with should they find themselves in that position. And this uh, project that you're undertaking, this eighth grade curriculum, mm -hmm. um, 
your, I would assume that your hope would be that, that this curriculum would be widely adopted. Yeah, that's hope. Definitely, <laughs> definitely don't want it to stay in a box. So, <laughs> well, yeah. I, I hope that succeeds. Yeah. Um, so another part of the Democratic Knowledge Project, which is of particular interest to me because I'm a professor of English, is the Humanities and Liberal Arts Assessment Project. Mm -hmm. So what is that and why is that? Sure. Important? So I was Dean of Humanities at the University of Chicago for a period of years um, in the mid-2000s. And it was a period where everybody was asking the humanities to explain what their value added was and what kind of impact they were having. I'm familiar with those questions. And I was extremely <laughs> annoyed by that <laughs> set of, of conversations. But the thing I was most annoyed about was the fact that in the humanities, we know exactly what we're doing. We know exactly what impact we're having. It's just that we don't talk about that value and that impact in the same vocabulary as the vocabulary of decision makers. Mm -hmm. So, um, but it really frustrated me that we couldn't make everything that we understood about the value of our pedagogy is visible to other people. Mm -hmm. So I set about trying to show that we actually already are always using criteria to measure the impact of our work and then also to find ways of it, translating that, making it visible to others. So the basic idea is that humanities are craft practices. They've been handed down from one generation to the next um, tacitly for the most part, but so they're sort of tacit bodies of knowledge about what makes an excellent argument, what makes excellent growth in terms of somebody's ability to interpret language or interpret you know, art or symbols or representational artifacts, what counts as growth in somebody's ability to interact with other people around an idea, mm -hmm. all kinds of things of this sort um, are, Im are embodied and are sort of embedded in the craft practice of humanists. So the basic idea was um, if you can, you can take archives of humanistic craft practice, find the the logic models, the theories of learning that are structuring the practice of humanistic teachers. Um, and let those provide the framework for assessment. You don't need to build assessment instruments external to the humanities. You need to find the ones that we are already using all the time whenever we grade papers, for example. We assess all the time is what we do. Um, so you take what we already do and take what's tacit in it and make it explicit and then everybody else can see what the structure of value is. You can also then, as I said, you, can, you literally can identify the sort of theory of learning that any given humanist practitioner is using and it actually turns out to be not that hard to connect that theory of learning to validated concepts, particularly in social psychology and cognitive psychology. That's not the whole of what the humanities do by any stretch of the imagination, but some of the basic kind of learning growth in uh, you know, cognitive abilities, critical thinking, intersubjective capacities, metacognitive thinking, and so forth. Those are part of our learning theories in the humanities, and those things are measurable. So the basic goal was to make sure that any measurement that would be done about the humanities would be done on the humanities' own terms, mm -hmm. by sort of taking ownership of that process mm -hmm. of, again, making explicit um, the learning theories that are structuring our work. So how did you make these things explicit? What, what techniques did you use? So we built, well, so we had to learn how to do qualitative coding work, qual qualitative data analysis, as it's called. Um, we built a code structure um, that it's a little bit complicated to explain, but sort of you take the different components that might make up a learning model, like what kinds of uh, materials does an instructor think they need um, to use? What kinds of practices does an instructor think they need to use? You want you have like a very, very long list of these possible things. What kinds of cognitive practices might an instructor think you need? What kinds of affective or emotional practices and so forth? And you use that to code the artifacts of an instructor's practice. So their course descriptions, any teaching notes they might have, even student artifacts. So you'll find you know, one practitioner where the artifacts are really 
put a you know, heavy emphasis on verbal material like reading and text and so forth and heavy emphasis on critical thinking and maybe less emphasis on intersubjective development. Um, and then maybe at the end of it all, kind of really heavy emphasis on civic growth for students. So sort of what's the overall kind of human developmental goal. Mm -hmm. And so then you have a kind of learning theory model for that instructor. Like they think, you know, really hard analytical work on text is going to help prepare people for citizenship. And then you can actually measure whether or not teaching that way has that effect. And, you know, spoiler alert, it does, mm -hmm. actually. You know, we haven't been doing these things for millennia, refining our practices for millennia because they don't work. Right. You know, like that's like the basic thing people should recognize. We've been doing it for millennia because it works. Right. Yes, I, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Sure. Um, so we're, we're approaching the end of our time. So. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about your most recently published book, Cuz, The Life and Times of Michael A., which is a memoir, which on the one hand could, it seems to me, be seen as a kind of uh, deviation from your path. Right. But in other ways, I think it's not. Want to say something about that book? Well, so yes, I mean, Cuz is the story of my baby cousin who ended up in prison in Los Angeles at the age of 15 and um, served 11 years on a first arrest for an attempted carjacking. Um, and then was dead three years after he was released. So it's uh, a very painful story, uh, painful for my family, painful for me, um, but an important story because we have in this country, as everybody knows, a huge problem of mass incarceration, but we so very rarely actually hear the voices of people who have been incarcerated. And Michael was a brilliant writer. Some of his essays and letters are at the heart of the book. Mm -hmm. And it was really important for me to help his voice get out and to be able to tell his story and to tell my story about wrestling with having a cousin in prison and, and being the cousin on duty, trying to help him when he got out to avoid recidivism and find a land on his feet and things like that. Um, and there is, it's a, a full circle in the sense that I said at the beginning of our conversation that the, the reason I ended up in classics was because I noticed the Athenians didn't have prisons. <laughs> and I had this question, about how could there be this world without prisons? Um, which sent me on this journey to study antiquity, um, which means that I do also now have this comparative view of our, the oddity, the sort of strangeness of the magnitude of our contemporary system of incarceration. Um, it's really not necessary. There are even alternatives here in the present in Germany and Netherlands and things like that. Um, so. So Michael's story um, is my story, and at the end of the day, I think any academic is really pursuing the questions that are at the center of their own lives. So, um, so yes, it's a memoir, it's a different kind of writing, um, but for me, it's actually probably the book where my most important questions um, finally come out. Mm, thank you. So we have one minute left, final question. Um, do you have a new book project that you're working on? Oh gosh, yeah. <laughs> so I, I mean, I have two. I tend to have two things on the boil at a time. One is a you know pretty abstract, um, hardcore political, political philosophy book about political equality, I'm trying to finally sort of systematize my arguments um, on all of those points. Um, and the other is a kind of rip roaring historical tale about a would be revolutionary in England in the late 18th century, the Duke of Richmond. Hmm. So. Fantastic. Well, <laughs> we look forward to you uh, completing those two and many others after that. Oh, I want to thank you so much for taking the time with, to speak with us today, Danielle. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Paul. It has been a pleasure. I've been speaking with Danielle Allen, James Conant University professor at Harvard University. She is the director of Harvard's Edmund J. Safra Center for Ethics. Allen gave a talk titled The Ethics of Public Participation in a Digital Age on May 21st, 2019 as the Oregon Humanities Center's 2018-2019 Criticos Lecturer. 
Her talk was part of the Common Good series. Thanks so much for watching. Thank you.